0: Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Episode 6, Anna Garrity's School of Dance. On my cable TV show a few years ago, I interviewed a friend who'd just had her first book of poetry published. Susan read some of her poems, and we talked about her view of mortality. I found her poetry, even in grief, to be very life-affirming. But, I asked, aren't we just whistling past the graveyard? No, she said with a broad smile. We're dancing past it. I have come to appreciate the whimsy and truth of her answer. Dance is found in most cultures, ancient and modern, and for various reasons, storytelling, mating, ceremonies, entertainment, and just joyfulness. The earliest dancing has been traced back to prehistoric times, represented in art on rock walls. Even in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes writes, there is a time to mourn and a time to dance. But when is the last time you danced a foxtrot or a quick step? If you're under 40, probably never. If under 30, you might never even have heard of them and I doubt that ballroom dancing was Trepsichore's idea of a good frolic. The first ballroom dancing appears to have begun in Europe in the 1600s, possibly with the minuet. This rigid form of partner dancing could have been the product of a sexually repressed society, at least in public, because behind closed doors those pre-Victorians were evidently pretty bawdy. Ballroom dancing as we know it today, however, most likely began with the waltz. Other ballroom dance styles followed as the music evolved. The dances were given names, had formal dance steps that were standardized and could be taught, and kept the partner-couple configuration. But the fact is, ballroom dancing is seldom done anymore, outside of competitions, special occasions, and stage choreography. It's gone the way of the typewriter. Some have done it, some remember it, and most would rather text. Although tango still endures, it and other Latin dancers are regulated in competitions by the World Dance Council. Yes, there is such a thing, and seen most popularly in Argentina and spy movies, probably because it's a whole lot sexier than the foxtrot or quickstep. There once was a time, years ago, when there were dance academies in small towns across America and elsewhere that taught ballroom dancing. Although Arthur Murray Dance Studios still exist, I think the lessons in ballroom dancing may be principally for special party events. The Anna Garrity School of Dance is definitely defunct, but it used to attract, in the 1950s, young men and women who were less eager to learn mambo than to couple up. Apparently, at Catholic school dances, boys and girls were cautioned not to get too close, but to keep the Holy Ghost between them. Back then, Anna Garrity taught not only ballroom, but also tap dancing, the beginner's cadence for which was brush, ball, step, brush, ball, step, buffalo, buffalo, buffalo. I just like saying that as I visualize a line of awkward teenagers trying so unsuccessfully to imitate Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, or the hoofer extraordinaire Bill Robinson, Bojangles. You can watch them all in old movies, which you should. All of that brings me to two points. One, ballroom dancing back then was formal, designed for adults, and synchronized to the music of the era. And two, rock and roll and disco changed everything. Even the 1920s, scandalous Black Bottom and Charleston didn't compare. After disco, you didn't always have to cling to your partner. And you didn't have to take classes. It didn't have to be boy and girl. Dancing became the calisthenic province of youth. It's sometimes hilarious and a little embarrassing to watch older adults try to do current dance moves. Never mind They still have line dancing, country dancing, and weddings. Beyond the rhythm of the music, there is something about dancing at any age that stirs our souls. Dancing to the beat, whatever beat does it for you, makes us feel good, fires up those happy neurotransmitters. Some years ago, I was in Vienna for a day. I don't mean that to sound pretentious. I was on a touristy bus trip to whiz by the capital cities of Europe. The tour guide, clearly bored with his job, brought us one afternoon to the Vienna Opera House for a special musical performance. We all dressed in our best suitcase clothes for the occasion. We probably should have been wise to him when he escorted us to a side door on the lower level, then disappeared. It was the Opera House basement. The 60 of us filed in and took our front row seats on folding wooden chairs facing the slightly elevated stage across a small dance floor. There were six musicians of various ages, older and retired, younger students, and perhaps some who failed their own aspirations. They all had, as I remember, stringed instruments. They wore ill-fitting, shiny tuxedos with frayed white collars and cuffs, and looked thoroughly weary of playing for the daily nicht musicalish parade of tedious tourists. This was obviously not the opera house orchestra. Nonetheless, they performed as though they were in front of royalty. I think musicians like actors with a meager audience play for each other, and because of that, I suppose I felt a great wave of empathy for them. On the bus tour were primarily Canadian and Australian couples. One of the men, about 30 years my senior, was a tall, overweight gentleman who had to sleep in a separate room from his wife because of his loud snoring. I heard him through the wall one night when my room was adjacent to his. It was loud but he was a good-natured fellow and kept us laughing. As the recital went on and on, waltz after waltz, no one moved. I began to feel as though we were letting the musicians down. Their expressions said, What do we have to do to get these people on their feet? I looked around at my fellow passengers. Surely some of these couples would get up and dance. It may have been the basement, but for heaven's sakes, this was Vienna. Finally, to denote the end of the program, they began playing... Strauss's Viennese waltz. Just as I'd given up on us, the snoring Canadian stood in front of me, offering me his hand. Maybe his wife sent him over, seeing how forlorn I looked. Or perhaps he, too, sensed that this was a moment in life when one has to act. No matter the drab and dreary surroundings, no matter the melancholy orchestra, no matter that no one else got up after us, I danced a waltz to the Viennese Waltz in Vienna at the Vienna Opera House. And I am ever grateful to that gentleman whose name I never knew for the memory. By no means am I an accomplished dancer. But dancing has played a role in my life from time to time, and perhaps yours as well. Years ago, my husband and I danced to the music of Bo Winokur at the Parker House Hotel, to the Boston Pops on New Year's Eve, to the Orange Blossom Special on the Saturday Night Country Hoedown, to any and all music from big bands to doo-wop, but we don't have the agility we used to. Which leads me to this small story. Many years ago, we traveled to Ireland and made a special trip to the Waterford-Wexford area. My husband wanted me to see the ancestral home of his great-grandparents. The day we arrived in the little village of Templeton, there was a wake at the one and only pub. We found John's last living relative, Uncle Bump, among the hearty revelers, who sang about the goose and the gander and other Irish folk songs. The pub owner told us in secret that Bump was so named because he would go Bumps-a-daisy with the ladies when he was younger. But don't call him that, the pub owner warned us. He doesn't like it. Well, the music went on, and somehow I wound up dancing with Uncle Bump. He jigged and jogged and two-stepped and clogged. I was young enough then to keep pace, and at the end we collapsed into a hug. I never saw Uncle Bump again after that day, but I came away with a certain knowledge that rhythm runs in our families. Joking, of course. Last month, coming back from lunch with a friend, I saw my husband's truck parked in front of our own local pub, so I decided to join him. There were only two other patrons there, one of whom I knew and one whom I didn't, except that I had heard that Eddie's wife died not very long ago, and he was at loose ends, not knowing what to do with himself. He was a small gray-haired man quite indistinguishable from any number of other men whom one might find at the local senior center for a holiday meal. But what was special about Eddie was that he loved to dance. Because he had difficulty sleeping, he'd taken a part-time job cleaning a local tavern in the very, very early morning, around 3 to 5 a.m. He'd been at it for a while before the owners decided to check out the internal security camera. To their surprise, they saw Eddie, mop in hand, grooving to jukebox music of the 70s. Not quite the flourish of the mop-wielding Sorcerer's Apprentice. Eddie's moves were probably the same ones he'd had back when he was courting. The video went viral among the customers. He quickly became the Travolta of the tavern. As I chatted with him, he asked, Do you want to hear some music? Sure. Our pub recently added a jukebox of its own, and Eddie knew all the songs. So what do you want to hear? Play whatever you like. As the Bee Gees belted out You Should Be Dancing from Saturday Night Fever, Eddie began to boogie. He had the arm movements, if not quite the splits and slides of the original. He was unabashedly enjoying himself. My husband cocked his head at me as if to say, join him. Why not, I thought. No one here is going to judge me. So I got up and I did my best. I, too, had some arm movements, even if the legs didn't quite synchronize. We went on to staying Alive and several other up-tempo oldies until we couldn't do it anymore. We were all smiles as I went back to my Diet Coke and he went back to his beer. We talked amiably about other things over the course of the following half hour or so. Then as we were about to leave, Eddie said, Thank you. You made this a happy birthday. Today's your birthday, we chorused. I don't usually tell anyone, he answered, looking down. It seemed such a small thing to dance, rather badly, I know, with him, but it was apparent that he had no one else to tell about his birthday or to celebrate it with him. I think he must have danced with his wife to the same tunes, and he was missing her even more today. So we stayed for a little while longer and sang happy birthday to him. That evening I thought of Uncle Bump, and I also thought of how integral music was to my life. My mother and father met at a dance in 1930-something at Roseland Ballroom in New York City. I picture her in a mid-calf skirt and block heel shoes with her short black hair and finger waves framing a sweetheart face. She thought at first that my father looked like a mobster. He had a full head of thick black hair when he removed his fedora, rimless eyeglasses, and smoked a big cigar. He wore a long black woolen overcoat when he came in. Who was this Al Capone? But she danced with him anyway, and discovered he was absolutely nothing like a gangster. He became her husband of fifty years. They danced all the time, even into retirement. At the over fifty five clubhouse, they did the Cha Cha, my dad's favorite, the Peabody, the Foxtrot, and even the Charleston. They were very good dancers. One autumn day, my eighty five year old father came back into the house after an afternoon of lopping off branches from a Japanese red maple, and said he was going to lie down. My mother, concerned that he didn't look right, followed him into the bedroom. As he lay down on the bed, he smiled up at her and said his last words. Want to go dancing? He then promptly died of a heart attack. If there's an afterlife, and my parents are together again, I hope they're dancing to the swing music of Glenn Miller's orchestra. I hope the same for my husband and me one day, and for Eddie and his wife. As for Uncle Bump, I picture him playing angel hips with a celestial bevy of fun-loving Irish lasses, including, perhaps, Anna Garrity. The end. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next month to hear Episode 7, Forgotten Lives, this time about some exceptional and intriguing people before they fade into oblivion. If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.